kind of what we focus. Everything else really falls into a secondary category. Our main purpose for living is to glorify God. That's why we're here. That's why we were created. God created man to live us to the ground. And created him for a purpose. Created him for a purpose to glorify him and to praise him. I need to stop and think about that just for a little bit. Because if I have to stop and think about the answer, what is my purpose to it may convey the idea that I haven't heard enough sermons on that. If I have to stop and wonder, just what is my purpose here? It may convey the idea that we haven't studied enough of that in our Bible classes and taught that in the opportunities that we come together to be together. If it is my major purpose and my primary purpose for being here, then it certainly deserves my attention. It deserves my time and my attention. I need to know what it is, and I need to know how to do it. If glorifying God is my purpose, I need to know how to do that. I need to know why it is significant. And that's why I went to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, such a wonderful passage of Scripture. 14 and 15 sort of okay. Romans chapter 14 and 15, all by the middle of the first century, from the city of Corinth. Is writing congregations in Rome. I think there were several congregations there in the Roman city. He was sitting for a time all writing to them. And he presents by inspiration the most theological statement of Christianity found in Rome. And I use theological in a good sense of the term. I believe that modern theology is led around by the nose by modern philosophers. So I'm not talking about modern day theology. I'm talking about more of the classical sense of the term, the study of God and the nature of God. And it's the most precisely stated document that we have that tells us what Christianity really is all about. All of the Bible is inspired. All of it is very important. Each book contributes in its own specific way. But this book has a special statement with regard to what New Testament Christianity really is. And he comes to chapter 14 and 15. And there was this problem of eating meats. And some of these people were Jews who had become Christians, but yet they still brought into the church this idea there's certain meats we can't eat, there's certain meats we can't eat. Because they lived that way so long. You remember in Acts chapter 10 why Peter was there in Caesarea and they had a vision and there were all sorts of animals ascending and descending in the vision. And the Lord said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. He said, Not so, Lord. I don't want to eat anything. And Peter later understood he's talking about people. He's talking about people. And so it was a long standing element for some of these people that they would eat certain things and not eat other things. And then you had Gentile people, pagans who had given up their pagan ways and become Christians, and they didn't think anything about eating meats. And so these you arise. If someone brings you over to your house, their house, they have been set for you. You know, if he has an objection, conscientious objection, he would have to Don't be a stumbling block. Don't cause him to violate his conscience. And now we know there's nothing in eating the meat. It's good to eat meat, it's good not to eat meat, it doesn't really matter. But if he has a conscientious objection about that because he really 
considering one or the other. If he doesn't want to eat meat, then don't eat meat. That's a matter of opinion. If you want to eat meat, fine. If you don't want to eat meat, that's fine too. It just doesn't matter. That's what chapter 14, 15 is about. You find this discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and it also comes up in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Now here it is again in Romans 14 and 15. And it brings this discussion down to the matter in verse 15, chapter 15. We talk about the unity of the church. That we be all together, one mind, speaking the same thing. And that's where our discussion really begins today. He says in Romans 15, I'll begin in verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So be united and be together. Be of one mind and one heart. Speak the same word, the word of God. And be united so that you can glorify God together. And he's saying, that's your purpose. God is expecting us to glorify Him. And He wants us to understand what that means and how to do it. It's our duty. So if I had to ask a question, what is my purpose here? Why am I here? Why am I here as a human being and as an individual living at this time and at this place? I'd have to say, my purpose here is to glorify God. It's much more to life than just the accumulation of things. There's a purpose for life. God has given us a purpose to glorify Him. The reading's not over. In verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. In other words, Christ came in human form. And that proved or showed or fulfilled the promises that were given to the Jews. But God had made a promise to the Jews to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God made a promise to Abraham a long time ago. But in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. And Christ's coming fulfilled that promise which God had made a long time ago. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Gentiles too may glorify God. Through the divine wisdom and plan of God, whereby both Jew and Gentile would come together in a unified place, with a unified purpose, with a unified will, dedicated to the Word of God, dedicated to the work of God, earnest in their work for God, and sincere in doing the will of God. We're here to glorify God. And we're not here for personal self-aggrandizement, for personal boasting, and for personal position, and to promote ourselves. We are here for God's purpose, to glorify Him. That's our purpose. And if I were to ask the question, what is my purpose for being here? I have to say, I'm here for glory of God. And David is going to have a purpose. As much as he might struggle, there is no purposefulness to accident of evolutionary development, organic evolution from a lower form of life to a higher form of life, who endless times, and they postulate amazing amounts of time, millions and millions of years, as if that cured everything with regard to their philosophy and problems. And when you die, it's all over, 
and no one's going to remember you, and you're going to be gone as if you've never existed before. Whereas Christianity is saying, God gave me a purpose. My purpose was to glorify you. In Romans, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we have an amazing passage there which talks about the glory of God. And the purpose which we have here on this earth, we have a purpose. Now, to the Greco-Roman world, it was quite a different mentality than what we have here in our modern world. We didn't have that benefit of, of um, the Bible and understanding of the Bible and the traditions that come up around that. But the Greco-Roman world was a world of paganism and mysticism and a mystery type of religion. And it was darkness and that kind of thing. And the Greeks had a way, especially, and the Romans adopted it, the idea that they could dichotomize the body from the soul. In other words, what the body does is one thing, but that doesn't affect the soul. The body can do whatever it wants to, but the soul is not affected by either the good or the bad thing that the body does. And that was their mindset. And Paul comes along in a very Greek pagan town named Corinth. The church is established, and these people come out of the paganism, and they're added to the church by means of the new birth. And Paul is very specific in telling them about you must withdraw yourself from these sins of the Gentiles, these paganisms. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, about verse, well, this whole section, and about a portion of the 6th chapter, about verse 12, verse 13. And God will destroy both and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. You're not to use your body that way. And how I use my body affects my soul. And the things that I do in this life affects my eternity. And Paul is telling them that these particular matters, they contaminate the soul. And there is an effect of my soul when I do, when I commit these things with my body. And he uses the word flesh here. He brings this thing on down to about verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Whom you have been, you have from God. You are not your own. For you were offered a promise. Now here's the point. So glorify God in your body. It's my duty. It's my duty to use my body for the Lord. It's my duty to separate myself from the sins of the flesh and the sins of this life. And he enunciates those sins in this paragraph. And he says, you withdraw yourself from these particular matters because what your body does affects your eternal soul. So he's saying, this is how you glorify God. You will use your body to glorify God and to praise God and to reverence Him. That's very clear in these particular matters. That he's not talking about outward appearance, though that's a part of it of, as well. But he's talking about the activities of our life, what we choose to do and what we choose not to do, that I've got to be very careful with regard to my body. Now, if I really believe this, if I really believe this, that my purpose is to glorify God, then what's that going to mean? About my spirit. Not to be able to approach. I'm going to be careful on the words I say. 
Because I don't want to say anything that would be a reproach to God. Mine to use my body as the glory of God and to honor God and to praise God. And, and I'm to separate my body from these physical sins that are all around us. But yet, if I really believe this, I'm going to say the right thing. I'm not going to use language that's on the wrong side of the way. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to take that same I'm going to be judged by every kind of word that comes out of my mouth. And if I really believe, and I believe, that I'm here for the Lord, I'm going to be careful about the word that I use. I'm not going to use the foul language that's so prominent and so very casually given. And one of the very things that's so casually done in our day and time is taking God's name and do If you do that, stop it. The Jews had such reverence for the, name, for the name of God that they wouldn't even pronounce it. They would only pronounce it, the high priest would only pronounce the name of God on the day of atonement once a year. And because of that, through the generations, we've actually lost the proper pronunciation for the name of God as we read it in the pages of the Old Testament Bible. And so translators have come along and said, well, we've got to put something there. We don't really know how. We know it refers to God, the triune God of the Bible, so they use the word Lord. And when they're reading it in Hebrew, they use the word Adonai. And they insert the Hebrew word Adonai for the name of God because we really have lost the proper pronunciation for the name of God. God says to Moses from the burning bush, tell them I am. That's what we use. I am. Word to be. God is always good. He's always present. Or 
I'm going to start doing what God has told me to do. I need to start doing that. Why? Because God said do that. That's a matter of obedience. Paul talks about the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 16, obedience of faith. I, by an obedient faith, am doing what God has said for the reason that I'm here for a purpose, and the purpose is to glorify God, and if I really believe that, Been obedient to the gospel. 
had been chosen by God through the obedience. A royal priesthood. I'm my own priest. I'm a royal priesthood and part of that. You see, I think he has in mind his Old Testament priesthood before they had to go through a high priest to go to God. But now, no longer. You go through Jesus Christ as your own priest. You're a royal priest. That's your status as a child of God. A holy nation. Spiritual nation. A people for his own possession. People who belong to God. Because of the purchase Christ in Jesus Christ. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is verse 9. Verse 9. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 is the key verse on how to be called. The call through the gospel. And the call is through the word of God. And by calling us through the gospel, we have responded and we have come out of darkness into light. Now I'm in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Isn't that amazing right there? The status of a Christian, he's God's people. Isn't that a wonderful thing that we are counted as being God's people? Once we were no people, but now we're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. Now I'm getting wrong. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil leaders, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. On the day of visitation, there will have to be the day of judgment, the terminal day. But he's saying, when people speak of you, you have such an honorableness about you, such an honesty, such a truthfulness about you, that your life, your good deeds, glorifies God. You bring glory to God, you do not bring reproach to God because of who you are and what you are and what you do. You're an honorable person. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, honest, and respectable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works. In other words, your Christian life. And glorify God on the day of visitation. Your life brings glory to God and praise to God and honor to God because of the way you do The kind of people that we are. Now I'm in 1 Peter chapter 4. And I find a marvelous passage here. It begins up in about verse 7. I won't take the time to analyze verse 7 on down through, but the passage I really have in mind comes to us in verse 11. He's talking about being a good steward of the gifts of God, verse 10. God has given us gifts, hasn't he? In the New Testament, sometimes he refers to gifts as miraculous gifts. For example, in Romans chapter 12, there's a listing of gifts there. Some, some of them are natural gifts. Some of them are miraculous gifts. We don't have the miraculous gifts today, but we still have the natural gifts, which God has given. He's given you gifts. He's given me gifts. And his point is, we should be good stewards or managers, verse 10, of the gifts which God has given us. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. That very grace means the many faceted aspects of God's grace. God's given you gifts and abilities. Use those gifts to benefit one another. 
But then notice what he also says. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. If anyone dares speak for God, let him do so based on the word of God. If anyone's going to speak for God, let him not speak for himself or his own opinions. Let him speak as God has provided the word of God to speak from him. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Give Him the honor. The honor belongs to Him. And what we say and what we do with the precious gifts that God has enabled us to do, rather than receiving the pride and receiving the boastful attitude regarding ourselves, let us give the glory to God. He's the one that gave it to us. There is no reason for us to boast in this particular matter. None whatsoever. God's given us the gift. And we use it for Him and His glory. May He receive the glory from whatever grace. I mentioned the passage earlier in our discussion this morning. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I think I'll go to that passage now. I've already explained about this issue of eating meats and that kind of thing and eating vegetables. And, and you had some. Now, the point in chapter 8 and chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians is a little different about eating meats, as I mentioned a moment ago. The point here is, you know, if this meat was offered to idols and now they're selling it in the marketplace, can a Christian buy that meat and take it home and eat that meat on his own table? And Paul was saying, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't change. Simply because it was offered to an idol doesn't contaminate the nature of the Take it home and you can eat it because there's nothing in an idol and there's nothing in the meat that is changing things. But somebody might have a conscientious objection to that, and so be considerate of that. It is a matter of opinion. Don't be forcing your opinion on someone else in these particular matters. Now, we're not talking about doctrine. We're talking about matters of opinion. But the reason I thought of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31, because I think it's an excellent statement with regard to the principle that we're trying to learn today. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the point. It's in 1 Corinthians, the chapter, chapter 10. The verse is verse 31. It's a Bible passage that says, this is your purpose in living. This is your purpose in life. This is going to govern words. This principle is going to govern your attitude. This principle is going to govern the way you live. This gives you as a Christian a new perspective about life. The perspective is now that everything that I say and everything that I do is directed toward glorifying God, which is my purpose in this life. My purpose in this life is not for me. My purpose in this life is for God. That's why I'm here. That's why I've been created. A marvelous statement about that would come in Galatians chapter 6. And so I turn to this particular passage. It comes at the end of the book of Galatians. And there's a lot to be said about this particular paragraph. And here is a very issue-oriented book. Romans is not so issue-oriented. But this one is issue-oriented. He's talking about Judaism teaching. Who are trying to change the gospel plan of salvation. You see, that's a doctrinal issue. There is no compromise with that. 
We cannot compromise on that matter and be pleasing in the sight of God. Not even an angel from heaven can come and change one element of God's book, God's divine will. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Let it never be done. May we always speak according to the oracles of God as we studied a moment ago.
I want to talk about things that we should not glory in. And there's a lot out there that we need to be aware of, where there's certain things we should not glory in in these particular matters. And then, this idea of glorifying God, I, you know, I get it, I understand, but how can I do it? How, how can I, in a practical way, in my everyday walk of life, glorify God? And it just seems to me that that's worth spending on time. I'm going to talk about more about God tonight. I'm going to talk about those important issues. I hope you do. And for those of you that are on the internet, I hope that you'll follow along so that you'll learn what your real purpose in life is. And it's to do with God. And I hope you start that purpose in life today by repenting of sin and confessing your faith in Jesus Christ and by being baptized into Christ for the remission of sin. I urge you to do it. Won't you come? Well, I'll have a mistake.